when you don't have actual power on, you know, disruptive power, political power, power in numbers, you know, institutions with power, you have to rely on the judiciary to solve your problems because you can't beat them politically. It's a symptom of weakness when you have to resort to the courts because you can't win an election. You can't put a strike in that beats them. You can't cause consequences for, you know, elite misdeeds. Welcome back to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. It is Wednesday, the 19th of October, which means that we're just over a week away from the second round of Brazil's election, pitting Lula against Jair Bolsonaro. And this is the third in an occasional series called Bunga Zone 2022, using the opportunity of Brazil's elections to look at some deeper themes uh, ongoing in Brazil, which uh, we hope have wider relevance to listeners elsewhere. And today uh, we're talking about anti-corruption, something that we've discussed on BungaCast a number of times over the years. Um, and I guess just to set this out, or at least to set out my stall on how I see it, anti-corruption is the predominant form of anti-system politics in an age beyond socialism, beyond um, other banners to rally around ideologically. So it's a kind of, if you want, post-ideological form of oppositional anti-system politics. But we might want to go, as we go forward, take a deeper look or try to deconstruct that notion, present an alternative understanding of what corruption is. Um, but that, I think, at least is the way that I tend to see it. Uh, and anyway, to do uh, to carry on this discussion about what has happened to anti-corruption in Brazil, because it has been such a dominant theme over the past decade, uh, I'm here uh, very much in Sao Paulo, uh, in uh, my uh, mini recording studio with Benjamin Fogel, uh, who can introduce himself. Hi, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, among other things, I'm a contributing editor at Jacobin, and I'm a historian of Brazil, and my research is specifically on anti-corruption politics and its longer history. So it's a topic I've kind of thought of a lot. Yeah, and uh, we're going to get into that longer history as we go through this, because there's quite a, uh, an interesting history to it. It kind of recurs at different points, and its political uses and valences uh, modify over time. Um, so I guess, anyway, just to get started, we should recap a little bit where we are with this election um, and set it in a bit of context. Now, I've said on Bunga Zone episodes before and in things that I've written, and th- as, as have you actually been, that this election is to a certain extent a plebiscite on democracy because we know where a second Bolsonaro term would likely lead at the very best of circumstances, not only to further chaos, but to... Uh, further degradation of democratic institutions. Um, I think we're agreed on that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, we're about halfway through the second round campaign and uh, it's very much neck and neck in the polling. Even if uh, the declared vote, vote seems to favor Lula, there's still a uh, closening gap. Lula's rejection levels are increasing and there's a number of indecide, which makes the election almost a coin flip at this point. Yeah, no, I, I still expect a little to win, but uh, I would be lying if I said I wasn't deeply, deeply nervous uh, and nerves which will only grow as we get towards next Sunday. Um, so I think we should characterize, first of all, what the 2018 election was like when Bolsonaro was elected very much as an outsider. Um, an outsider, uh, though, of course, he was to a certain extent an insider because he was a seven-term congressman, but he won a presidential election without a real party structure behind him, without basically any t- uh, officially allocated TV time. Um, and he was effectively a nobody uh, who had only recently come to prominence as a, suppose, a supposed 
uh, herald of anti-corruption politics um, or someone who's able to capture the anti-corruption wave. So when, t- when the 2018 election happened, he was the guy to wield the anti-corruption uh, cudgel, if you will. And uh, the, the 2018 election was dominated by the question of corruption in a way that 2022 is not. And I think we should maybe talk through exactly how that transition has happened. Well, I mean, part of the issue is that, A, once you take power in Brazil, it forces you to get your hands dirty. And what Bolsonaro has done is jump into the pigsty with great abandon, apart from, uh, which we'll talk about later, dismantling uh, sort of anti-corruption and accountability mechanisms. He has effectively sanctioned the whole scale systemic bribery of Congress to secure a coalition. So in effect, he's institutionalized uh this form of influence trading corruption to a greater degree than perhaps ever before in the post-1985 Brazilian order. Furthermore, the we had a little pandemic thing that happened, the economy is in dire straits, and the question of corruption, and we can get to how corruption scandals are manufactured and created through politics later, has been sort of uh, set aside as a memory to uh, use against the Workers' Party and Lula's candidacy, but it's not the overriding theme of this election right now. We have, uh, of course, we have the economy. We yeah, have cost of living, first, yeah. most of all. Yeah, and we have this sort of increasingly moralistic campaign for the votes for religious voters defined by scandals, including pedophilia, uh, cannibalism, Satanism. Well, different ways yeah. to appeal to uh, religious voters by claiming that these people want to close the churches. So it's been moralistic without being defined by the issue of corruption so much. Yeah, which is which is actually interesting because uh, the corruption discourse that existed in Brazil from 2014 to 2019 um, to take the I guess those five years really at speak six years even uh, were was very much a moralistic understanding of corruption and if corruption the taint of corruption uh, was attached to you that means that your chances were were pretty slim so everybody had to pose as an anti-corruption warrior effectively which. Uh, put the Workers' Party, the PT, in a kind of relatively complicated position, given that they had been in power over the period in which this massive corruption scandal, the Petroleum, around the state-controlled energy company, um, was revealed, right? And Brazil's, um, you know, head, the headline news every, and every night on the main TV news program was who's been arrested, effectively, and with, uh, you know, top politicians or um, corporate types being led away in handcuffs. And that was kind of Brazil's the spectacle of Brazilian politics for quite a long period, for like six years. Um, so it's interesting, I think, yet yeah, to note that the moralism that's come into this campaign has been far more in religious terms. It's not a moralization of like politics, but it's like a moralization, a Manichaean approach to moral themes. Um, and it's basically a competition of like who's side is the devil on well don't vote for the guy who's got the devil in his camp um which is a real deterioration of political discourse but that is for another time and another episode um we're gonna stick to to the question of corruption um i think maybe we should start rather than by covering the history because we're going to cover the the recent and more distant history in just a bit um but looking at what has happened since Bolsonaro won this big anti-corruption election as the candidate of anti-corruption against the um, you know, corrupt workers' party who are associated with this whole wave of corruption? Well, I mean, effectively, a lot of things happened. But one of the first things, which we'll come into factor later, was that he won in part by securing a coalition deal with the official force of anti-corruption, which was the car wash, Lava Jato investigation, principally 
The main judge involved Sergio Moro, who infamously jailed Lula in 2018. He was appointed the Minister of Justice. Now, that was a short-lived uh, romance, and but Moro is back in the coalition. Moro famously resigned, claiming that Bolsonaro had gone too far in dismantling accountability mechanisms and uh, was a dictator-in-waiting. But now he's elected senator and backed by Bolsonaro's side. He was pictured in the debate on Sunday, standing next to members of the Progressive Party, which is infamously the most corrupt, rent-seeking, influence-trading party in Brazil. Yeah, so it's really come full circle. The other thing is that Brazil, uh, that Bolsonaro, throughout his reign, directly intervened, breaking the separation of powers into courts, the federal police, the judiciary, the public prosecutor, as a means to protect himself and his family from uh, the criminal investigations, the numerous ones into their very shady dealings, such as having 51 houses bought in solid cash money. And then the most important thing, which is something which we'll dis- dissect a little bit later, called the Orsamento Secreto, which is the secret budget, which was a f- bill passed in Congress that effectively gave uh, powers to the Speaker of Congress to distribute funds to chosen uh, allies without any oversight to the tune of billions and billions of dollars. And this money has been used not only to uh, make a lot of personal profit for people involved, but to effectively buy off Congress and ward off the threat of Bolsonaro facing impeachment requests, which were numbering about 140 plus at the last time I checked. <laughs> yeah, which is a ridiculous number if you think about it. Um, but, but you know, completely, completely appropriate, actually, in many cases, given um, how many transgressions uh, he's done. And, and I mean, part of the story to this is also the fact that Bolsonaro has been at war with the judiciary throughout a large period of his office. And that is despite him coming to office as, in some ways, the guy who gave political form to the crusading judiciary who were the main anti-corruption warriors. So I think maybe just as a, as a bit of ground clearing, so listeners who aren't so familiar with Brazil are clear on who the main actors and forces here are. On the Brazilian new right, so we're not talking about the old establishment uh, neoliberal center right, nor the old clientelist right who, who are just there basically for pork barrel spending, um, but the kind of civic right who are not necessarily in institutions, the new right which had emerged as of uh, 2013. You've basically got a new right, which is uh, liberal, economically liberal, um, who see any state action as necessarily corrupt. You've got the anti-corruption right, which is uh, normally called Lavajatista, uh, supporters of the Lavajato investigation, who are not the same as the former group, but um, there's a certain amount of overlap. And then you've got the hardcore authoritarian right, which is like Bolsonaro's main base. Those are, I, th- I think, would you agree, those are the three main components of the Brazilian new right? I mean, I'd also add in the evangelical. And then there's the evangelical base as well, which I guess is a fourth actor in that. Then, of course, there's other actors, but they're more institutional actors like the military and, and security forces. But in terms of um, kind of civil groups, those are the maybe three or four um, key elements. And what Bolsonarismo uh, was able to, or what Bolsonaro was able to achieve in the 2018 election was to bring all those together mm-hmm. to get this, uh, you know, liberal, neoliberal, uh, new right, uh, in together with the anti-corruption warriors, in together with the evangelicals, um, and his authoritarian, you know, pro-military dictatorship base and get them all kind of sewn up into an alliance. Um, but then as you were explaining, you know, Sergio Moro is brought in as his justice minister, having previously jailed Lula. Um, but then that whole 
thing blows up. And maybe it's worth talking through exactly why that ends up blowing up. Well, I mean, as I mentioned, part of what Bolsonaro was doing was uh, using his powers in the state, which was, again, very predictable if you followed his family, to insulate himself and his son, politician sons, his overgrown, slow-witted sons, from prosecution for scandals involving connections to Rio's paramilitary mafias, ghost employees, and all sorts of shenanigans. So that intervention to quash those investigations, you know, separate independence of powers, you know, was a sort of gulpy but coup within a coup, and Moro, to try to preserve his political reputation rather than out of any moral stand, resigned. But what united these new right forces was uh, anti-workers party, anti-pete sentiment, and now they've come back together, the team is back, mostly because there's a good chance the Ludo and the workers party will be back in power. So you can see how these forces require like a main enemy to congeal. But what's important to understand as well is effectively Brazil's political system in Congress to an extent its political class being remade and institutionalized through this new right coalition through massive amounts of what is effectively corrupt spending. Yeah. And then the other thing that's worth pointing out just in terms of the, this is the numbers involved in this scandal dwarf all the other sort of congressional scandals that hurt previous administrations, but yet it's not treated as a scandal on the same level in terms of how people talk about it, what people know about it, or even media coverage to an extent. And it's worth pointing out something to discuss a little bit later. Scandals are created, they're not born. Yeah, no, exactly. And maybe also worth talking about this, uh, you know, the secret budget, because the sheer scale of secret state spending that has gone on now in the lead up to the election to shore up um, local party, local politicians of various parties across the board, across the country, um, and then who also maybe are in some cases able to divert that spending to real to real things in local constituencies, which then, you know, plays a part in um, bolstering support for Bolsonaro and Bolsonarismo the whole way down the chain. So not just at the presidential level, but for candidates down ballot. Um, you know, the scale of that is huge, right? Like a, it's like 40, something like 44 billion reais or something like that. Yeah, it's about 8 billion dollars. But then it's also got another level to it. It was used effectively to show up a coalition in Congress, which then authorized even more money in what is emergency social spending which was extra payments, payments released early, effectively to try buy votes for Bolsonaro. So basically what they accused of Jilmer doing this in 2013 to win the 2014 election, this is even more blatant on a whole different level in terms of effectively making sure in the second round there's two extra payments for welfare recipients. It's very blatant. So you build a coalition and the coalition then authorizes emergency spending against the constitutional amendment limiting Public spending passed under Demer, the you know illegitimate president before Bolsonaro, in effect to authorize massive vote buying. So what you can see is the classic populist tools of, you know, pork barrel spending and patronage to win votes and win elections have been utilized by Bolsonaro, who came into power as the anti-corruption candidate, without it resulting in a either the institutional resistance. You know, you had a coup in 2016, a congressional coup. Or the sort of scandal mongering that you saw in the run up to the 2018 election. So it shows the lack of resistance to these techniques when wielded by the extreme right.
Yeah, and I mean, so this discussion doesn't become, at least for listeners, a kind of uh, dirty political goings-on down south um, and doesn't play into that kind of stereotype. I think trying to bring the sort of politics into this, um, I think there's a couple of different angles that we can take. One is that um, to look at the legacy of Lava Jato, to look at the legacy of these anti-corruption investigations and the moralism associated with that and how that appeared to be so damaging for the left and why the left, particularly in, under the leadership of the PT, which is the largest left party, was unable to really find its footing under this under this phase. Um, my, my take is that effectively there was a missed opportunity in 2013 when there was a massive June days protest. Uh, we spoke about this at the last Bunga Zone 2022 uh, episode. Um, which is a huge uprising, which people now tend, especially on the left, to read backwards and to go, ah, that necessarily led to Bolsonaro. That is completely false. Um, it was a genuine democratic moment. And because the Workers' Party were in government, they were, uh, and, and not only that, but had become incredibly bureaucratized and separated from their base, were unable to maneuver themselves in such a way as to um, either seek to lead that or at least not be just entirely on the receiving end of it. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why anti-corruption became, um, became one, associated with the right, and the right this new right was able to seize leadership of, of all that popular energy. And it was genuinely popular for all that, you know, in, on the streets, it was a lot of kind of white middle class people. Um, it did have genuine popular appeal. It was, um, there was huge support for the anti-corruption investigations. There was even support at when time came to it for uh, the impeachment of, of Juma. Um, but the, I think, so not only did they, not only was the Workers' Party not able to lead that, um, it also, uh, I think, came to color what was anti-corruption. It made anti-corruption a moralistic thing rather than what it could have been, perhaps, um, a pol- more political understanding linked to um, a call for a political revolution or, or at the very least political reform. Well, I mean, we can get into the longer history of that in a bit, but I mean, I think there's two points to be made about this. One is that, uh, you know, there is the element in which things were getting worse in Brazil from 2013 onwards. There was an economic crisis, a rise in violent crime. There was a feeling that things were not right in the land. And corruption became a general term to express your discontent with what was going on. It became an explanation, a catch-all thing to fit all your grievances in. In uh, As you've said before, when you don't have a sort of vision of the future, an articulation of a anti-systemic politics with a, you know, utopian or post-our-system uh, vision. Yeah, or even a programmatic yeah, one. Yeah, it becomes an expression of general discontent. And I think that's partially explains what happened. The second thing is that um, there's a set of forces which acted in a very specific manner to uh, mobilize what was the transgressive feeling of Lava Jato, which was the end of impunity for elites. It was seen as the, one of the first times, but it wasn't the first time, but one of the few times. Again, the first time is a you know, fictional narrative that elites, including political leaders, uh, business tycoons, were seen as locked up and facing the consequences for their actions uh, instead of what they say in Brazil, a cabo in pizza, which means ends in pizza, everyone gets around and just makes a deal to sort everything out. So that was a transgressive factor. 
But in the course of it, there's a third thing which is very interesting is how basically, and I don't think we have an explanation of exactly how it happened, how sort of rogue branch of the judiciary became a sort of extra branch of the state, a fourth branch of the state, if you would like, through this process to the point that we're changing, changing the Constitution the Supreme Court directly, which is the investigation itself. So what you saw is what is a general scandal involving basically the entirety of Brazil's political class, which is why there was a sort of panic related to it, focus on um, the Workers' Party and Lula in particular as uh, the sort of Moby Dick, the great white whale to catch for Moro's Captain Ahab. And what I mean by that is that there was infamously a PowerPoint slide where everything was pointing towards Lula at the center of all of it. So rather than dealing with a systemic question of like embedded corruption in politics, it became a mission to get Lula as a sort of uh, harpoon the whale. Yeah. And what that meant is it also brought into fore the embedded institutional power players in Brazilian politics, particularly the media and financial sector who got on board with this. And the second thing is you had a sort of general panic among the political class who are worried about being uh, locked up for their crimes. So they desperately try to rally behind a scapegoat to infamously protect the system. Yeah. And those two, those different processes happened at the same time, resulting in first the impeachment of Gilma in 2016 and second uh, Lula going down in 2018 and finally being locked up. Yeah. And then, I mean, soon after that, and maybe against the intentions of the investigators in the Lava Jato task force or whatever, the, the, the investigation was, was round up. And of course, uh, listeners will probably be familiar with what is called the Brazil Vaza Jato, um, which is a bit of a play on words, but it was the intercepts investigations led by Glenn Greenwald et al., um, who, um, revealed um, because they received some secret communications, revealed how corrupt the anti-corruption investigation itself actually was. And that kind of doomed it. But it, to a certain extent, for a lot of its supporters, it had done its job. It had taken the PT out of office, um, and that was consummated by Bolsonaro's victory in 2018. Um, but I think what there's something, in, a couple of interesting things to explore in that whole moment of anti-corruption was that one, you have a, like a street movement effectively against corruption, but which has a foot in in the state, in institutions, with this uh, section of the judiciary, which is like a pretty novel situation. So um, the rise of the kind of new national and populist authoritarian right around the world is a story which is, you know, despite its differences, feels like a general wave. What is unique about the Brazilian situation is not that there was an anti-corruption moment, because that you've had everywhere from like Romania to Spain to everywhere else, um, but that you also had this this element where you had like a kind of, yeah, a section of the state trying to eat away at it. And what's just a kind of little reflection of this is that this created some pretty heated debates on the left, or at least on the far left, um, between parties who saw in the anti-corruption investigation an attempt by effectively the bourgeoisie to clean up its own affairs and therefore worthy of backing. Um, you had certainly more PT aligned left going, no, this is just a crusade to attack the PT and Lula specifically, and they need to be defended. And then some kind of intermediate positions, which kind of said, maybe it was a good idea at the start, but of course this is problematic because it's anti-political. Um, it is a, an, an attempt to basically 
delegitimize any state action whatsoever. Um, because, you know, for example, if the state has state-owned companies, that is naturally going to lead to corruption and therefore um, you, it, you know, follows a kind of privatization agenda and therefore they were against it. Um, so I think it's interesting how... Um, how the fact that the left didn't really have an answer to anti-corruption even played out in a sort of fragmentary way on the far left, that it became the, the object of a lot of uh, very heated disputes, even, you know, on the far left, which is, of course, very minoritarian, but uh, but nevertheless. No, I mean, I would generally agree with that. But it also, I mean, part of the issue is that the Workers' Party came into power as an anti-corruption force. Which is important to note. Which yeah. we'll discuss a little bit later. But I want to make a sort of international general point is that one of the things about Lava Jato is that the mechanisms and laws that were introduced in terms of uh, both financial transactions and investigation uh, powers were introduced by workers' party governments. And then the model was then promoted internationally as the model for anti-corruption. Yeah. These figures were promoted as sort of like centrist or liberal figures when they were of the extreme right in terms of the judges' investigators. But this model was in the you know UN anti-corruption stuff. This was in Transparency International. And most of the figures who did a lot of promotion of these you know, which turn out to be extreme right opportunists uh, later down the road have not really done any reflection on this. But what is interesting is now Sergio Moro and Delano, the leader of the Lava Jato task team, are both back in the Bolsonaro fold, the head of Transparency International Brazil, and condemned them for the first time, I think, yeah. for being enablers of corruption. Because, of course, Bolsonaro is the guy who closes down Lava Jato, changes the laws to prevent this from happening, and effectively breaks down the separation of powers. All of this, if wasn't done under the Workers' Party, and if they even hinted at it, it would have been like this massive eruption, possible military coup, it would have been pretty intense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think it's interesting also how this stuff is recursive. So, you know, the support of Transparency International, for, for example, played very you know, strongly in Brazil, the fact that Sergio Moro was Harvard educated. And so the connection to um, elite global or, you know, at least institutions of the global north um, fed back into to, to its legitimacy. And you get this situation where, I mean, just to paint, give a general example, let's say, let's say a, a, an emigre Brazilian um, who lives in the US would vote for the Democrats, would be pro Hillary, for example, would be supportive of the far right in Brazil. And they would see no uh, contradiction between those things. So it's interesting how that kind of international level feeds into Brazil and vice versa. I mean, I'd also say anti-corruption, at least the dominant model promoters, developmental concern and economic concern from post-Cold War uh, international institutions and uh, both in multilateral and private ones, has been promoted as a technocratic concern, that there's an official model to get to to fix things. And Lava Jato was presented as a technical fix. These were technocrats. They had found a way. The and I would say what's interesting is how this way of dressing up what was a very politicized and openly so in many respects project as a technical concern and promoted as such distorted the politics and anti-politics of it in terms of that um, in some senses the extreme right of proposing moral solutions and framing everything as a moral question is anti-political. The technocratic thing of saying that politics gets in the way of solutions is also anti-politics. So these two different forms of anti-politics sort of allied in different levels. Yeah, I mean, I would I, I would distinguish them by saying one is the anti-politics of rejection um, is one thing. And the other one is opposed politics of effectively foreclosing any political debate, having it very being very technocratic and managerial. But it's interesting how like at, at the aesthetic level, I think it becomes clear how 
um, things which seem different are actually the same. So as you can say, you know, the whole Transparency International approach, and I'm just using that as a sort of metonym, but of kind of official globally sanctioned anti-corruption investigations supported by the U.S. Justice Department and so on, is supposedly technical, technocratic, uh, shiny, clean, and neoliberal in terms of its politics, in terms of trying to break up state business nexuses, nexi, I don't know, uh, in in various countries, right? So, oh, if the Nigerian oil company is state-owned, for example, and, uh, you know, has links to politicians, well, that's going to be corrupt. We need to go in and break that up and open the, you know, the oil fields to public tender so that other foreign companies can come in. So we can see pretty clearly what the agenda is here. It's in the interest of multinational corporations and so on. And I think that's fairly transparent. Uh, no pun intended. Maybe the pun was intended. Um, anyway, um, but, ha- but then the, the, what becomes clear, I think specifically in the Brazilian case, is that how that shiny, clean, neoliberal, technical, technocratic approach actually flows very neatly, is adjacent to, or is perhaps at a certain point even identical to something which has a very different aesthetic. Um, muscular, angry, aggressive, militaristic, uh, authoritarian, and so on, all the things that one would associate with Bolsonaro. Um, so it's, yeah, I, I think it kind of perhaps reveals a certain truth to that, or Maybe if we want to put it in a different way, that transition from the, you know, the shiny neoliberal thing to the, you know, aggressive militarist authoritarian thing, um, maybe shows a transformation within neoliberalism itself from the kind of end of history form of neoliberalism to the later end of the end of history form of neoliberalism, which is increasingly authoritarian. I don't know. I mean, yeah, but also in Brazil, and this is really where my research examines is that anti-corruption in its primary uh, recent historical outbursts, and particularly the 1950s and 60s, combined the two in that it was supported by the right-wing liberal factions within the military, the right-wing liberal factions on the street, who mobilized the middle classes specifically against corruption scandals, which were linked to state-led developmentalist institutions, including Petrobras, which is the central of center of this Lava Jato investigation. Mm-hmm. Wait, so let me let me just stop you there because actually it'd be interesting to to you know lay this out in a more chronological fashion, I guess. So talk about your research and what that that kind of history of anti corruption in Brazil leading up to I guess the nineteen sixty four military coup. Well, Brazil has really only had two periods of actual competitive democracy, one being nineteen forty five to nineteen sixty four, and one being sort of nineteen eighty five to the present. My research examines the first, in which there was. Franchise, universal franchise to all but the illiterate and also military uh, members of the armed forces. But um, at the core of this was a battle in which Brazil's former dictator, terms of developmental populist and man of the, of the working class, Getulio Vargas, came back into power uh, after a brief and failed experiment with free, not free in the reintroduction of free market economics, promising development funded by creating domestic business at the expense of international capital, nationalization of strategic resources, and political inclusion and redistribution for Brazil's popular classes. Now, that presented a reaction from Brazil's liberal forces, which included sort of people who would style themselves as modern liberals, who looked to the US for inspiration, or Europe, and the old oligarchical land-owning types and finance types in Sao Paulo. Now, they formed a coalition that uh, was anti-Vargas and 
was also allied to significant factions within the armed forces. And what they did is they struggled to mobilize against Vargas, didn't really offer anything, and they eventually found anti-corruption, which didn't exist in the sort of personalized form that we know today as a way of mobilizing against him. So they, led by a man called Carlos Lacerda, a journalist, uh, polemicist and politician, uh, basically manufactured a scandal about having a uh, newspaper, uh, which was created for a more working class popular audience with state funds, that challenged the sort of dominance of Brazil's traditional media-owning families as an example of corruption. They used this scandal to hammer the government. And while they were unable to remove Getulio from power through institutional mechanisms, they were creating the conditions for a military coup in the sense of creating a current sense of governability where the military would step in to restore order. Now, uh, this full story is pretty called the Marjilama, the Sea of Mud, which famously began when supposedly uh, Getulio's bodyguard, who was black, his chief bodyguard, which is again part of the scandal, uh, ordered a hit on Carlos Lacerda, who was slinging mud at Getulio every day, calling him the father of lies, bad father, all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, the hit failed, it only hit Lacerda in the foot, but it killed his volunteer bodyguard, who was a respectable Air Force major. That created another crisis in which it was alleged that the palace had ordered this murder, and the military were about to mobilize. There was an institutional crisis in effect that could only result through a military coup that would destroy Brazil's constitutional order and remove the riffraff from power. But Getulio famously thwarted that by killing himself and writing a letter which summoned the masses to the streets who thwarted that coup. But they had found a formula, and they used this formula again and again to attack state-led developmental attempts with a distributive edge that would change the balance of forces and power in Brazilian society. They traded it again against the next president, Joselino Kubitschek, three times, and they failed. Then uh, in, there was a crisis of institutions, a sort of representational crisis after Joselino Kubitschek's presidency, which led to the first anti-corruption president, a guy called Janio Quadros, who was again elected without sort of a party, sort of a populist from Sao Paulo, who famously brandished a broom to sweep away the dirt. He was elected, but he had no similar to Bolsonaro in some respects, had no idea how to govern. So he lasted only eight months. And his vice president, who was Getulio's political heir, a more left-wing, pro-workerist type, came into power after a a near coup. But over the course, till 1964, which was when the actual coup happened, anti-corruption combined with anti-communism and really articulated, which was described directly, and it's really in my research shows the strategy in a very moralistic fashion presenting as absolute good against evil, that all the problems stem from corruption, that corruption was the new plot of the communists to take power. And this was used to sort of create the conditions for the mass mobilization of particularly the middle class in this period, sort of form the identity of them as the moral class in Brazil in these actions to create the mass support needed to pull off the coup in 1964. Yeah. And that, and that sort of, um, if I can say it this way, populist framing, where you have the, 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 the people who are cast as clean, holy, good, uh, against the elite. Now, the elite might be, you know, trade unionists who are obviously not elite, um, but they might be leftists. They might be the intellectual elite, artists, whatever. Um, and that's a, that's a framing which 
recurs again with with Bolsonaro very much. Um, and we'll maybe kind of conclude by talking a little bit about that uh, in a bit. But what's interesting is that obviously here, this this um, episode, you know, in the 50s and 60s of anti-corruption, very much associated with the moralistic agenda of the right, uh, you know, changes by and the next big corruption moment, which is in the early days of Brazil's redemocratization in the late 80s and early 90s, because uh, Brazil elects Fernando Collor as president in 1989 against Lula. Lula makes it to the second round and loses. Um, and Collor is involved in a huge corruption scandal. Well, I mean, I think there's like three quick points before attendance. One, one of the interesting things about the type of populism you referred to is a populism of virtuous citizens, which articulates itself as anti-populism because real populism is just elites bribing the masses. You don't know how to vote. Right. So it's like anti-populist populism. The second thing is part of the reason the military regime collapsed was, you know, widespread corruption and disheartened the ranks of mili- the military where it was no longer an effective unit. There was a lot of projects that were never built. It was a destabilizing force from being a stabilizing force. No, and actually, yeah, the, the question of the military is interesting because um, in Bolsonaro's vision, it is a bulwark against corruption. It is a way of cleaning the land from all the corruption that is democratic politics and instoring what he calls true democracy, which is actually dictatorship. But um, that is the kind of discourse that Bolsonaro uses. But of course, the, the military dictatorship was hugely corrupt, but it, um, the authoritarian clamp on uh, freedom of expression, investigation, and all the rest of it um, meant that these things were not not discussed really at the time or didn't become scandals and um, uh, and actually haven't become scandals in the aftermath of the dictatorship precisely because Brazil never really confronted the history of its uh, of its own dictatorship. Yeah, I mean, Carlos Lacerda went from being a supporter to enemy of the dictatorship, pointed out that they had uh, far from getting rid of corruption, they had institutionalized it and perfected it in the art of securing alliances with the political class and economic elites. Yeah. It was used as a stabilizing mechanism in uh, a uncompetitive electoral system to ensure sort of elite uh, stability. And anti-corruption was also deployed by the military who didn't find any evidence of communist treason to basically remove the political rights of their enemies. So there was famously a huge sort of anti-corruption corruption inquisition after the military took power, which was basically used to suspend the political rights of trade unionists, leftists, and civilian opposition politicians. And we're going to come on to actually this question of how corruption can be functional. Because we're talking a lot about anti-corruption politics, but corruption itself um, and how we conceive of it is uh, is a political question. And also the operation of, uh, of corruption has to be understood as not just necessarily a kind of individualistic free-for-all of everyone uh, making bank for themselves, but can be uh, something that is systemic and functional in a way. Um, not that you necessarily say that this is a good thing, but that it uh, nevertheless kind of helps keep stability, as you've been saying. Anyway, let's move forward to, to the early 90s in color. Well, I mean, this is one of the most degenerate episodes in Brazilian history. So, uh, Gola is, despite being fed at the, the teat of the military corrupt Bra- uh, Brazilian elite, uh, was presented as an outsider because he's from a small northeastern state where Alex is going to visit in a couple of weeks. Um, I'll be reporting from there. Which is notorious for... Uh, shenanigans of its political class and famously for instance Carlos' father 
killed a man in the Senate and got away with it because he killed the wrong man. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so he came to power and he came to power as an anti-corruption par- candidate, a modernizing neoliberal playboy. He said he was going to be the hunter of the Maharajas who were the overpaid parasitic civil servants who had, uh, you know, taken up the bureaucratic positions of Brazil's giant developmental state. No, but he came to power and he didn't really, and he didn't have anyone to appoint, so he just appointed his family. So famously, the first thing he did was freeze everyone's bank accounts after he and his mates got their money out of the country and uh, as an attempt to curb inflation and only went downhill from there. And effectively, what he was turned out is a used car salesman turned political fixer was running a gigantic shakedown scheme where they were from Brazilian polit- um, businesses to have a private slush fund for uh, Cola. So it was about $2 billion in terms of some of the estimates. And in this is 1992 in Brazil, where they had no money because everyone's bank accounts were frozen. There was hyperinflation. So it was pretty vast amounts of money. There's also drug trafficking, black magic, and all sorts of other shenanigans. But effectively, because there was an economic crisis, which is important to understand when a scandal becomes effective, he didn't have the political allies because he was sort of like the guy who fell in rather than the guy they wanted initially. He'd been created by the me- the sort of media as a media creation. And because he just blatantly was shaking down everyone getting really high on his own supply in his spare time, meant that there was a crisis, institutional crisis in which there was a convergence of the street mobilizations led by not the Workers' Party, but the Communist Party at this point and students of the left against him, the anger of the middle class about losing their savings, and the anger of the political establishment about not being able to get a solution to this crisis. These all combined to a impeachment, and the impeachment was basically started when his brother went to uh, Veja, which is like Brazil's Time magazine, and said, not only is this guy trying to sleep with my wife, but he's, you know, running Brazil's a giant private fiefdom for his own personal benefit. And famously, uh, there was a moment where Carla tried to summon his supporters to the street to wear the Brazilian national flag to prevent an impeachment. But instead, everyone came out in black with the flag painted on their faces in protest against him. And he resigned and then was impeached. But this was like the first major corruption shakeup, which has sort of been forgotten in Brazil in 92. It removed the president and... Uh, the protagonists on the street rather than the people that we know in the 1950s and 60s or the 2010s were, you know, left-wing communists and students. Yeah, yeah. So this in the early 90s was 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 the left. And this was the PT was always understood and presented itself as an anti-corruption party, amongst many other things. Um, it was the party who would modernize Brazil, uh, take away all the, you know, not only lead to kind of greater inclusion of the masses, but also um, rid the, the, the functionings of the elite from all this all this old corruption. Um, and then you might say, well, it's an irony of history that they end up then getting caught up in that same machine. And on one level, you say, well, that's perhaps a natural consequence of them uh, playing the game, right? They, they wanted to pat certain, you know, pro-social measures, and therefore they played the game and they got caught up in it. But one thing that they did do was pass a lot of uh, measures allowing for the autonomy of investigative uh, and accountability institutions, which of course gets forgotten uh, in all of this. But um, anyway, that's uh, that's how the cookie crumbles. And make one quick point. Sorry to intervene about this, but also should be forgotten that the transformation of the center-left, which was the Social Democratic Party, which became the center-right party, also came in as a technocratic anti-corruption to do away with these inefficient, you know, clientelistic systems within the state. And But Brazil's constitution only allowed for uh, one term at this point. But to get a second term, 
Fernando Enrique Cardoso, former Marxist sociologist and neoliberal, authorized the whole-scale bribery of Congress to get changed constitution to allow for a second term, which also had the effect of changing that, also the center-right anti-corruption dynamic within the state as well. And then you have the Workers' Party come into power and have a similar experience after inheriting the system. Yeah, yeah, no, so there's like a kind of number of kind of repetitions that happen there. I think to to zoom out from... uh, both Brazil and from the like specifics of, of kind of corruption, it's worth, I guess, um, trying to understand what corruption, how corruption changes as a concept, um, as according to the class struggle with politics and so on. Um, that it's not something that's innate or self-evident, I think. Um, like, you know, I already said that it's not necessarily something that is, uh, you know, reflection of an individualistic free-for-all but can be not only systemic but somehow functional for that system um, a means of guaranteeing stability um, and buying consent effectively and that's how it has functioned in brazil it's part of the reason brazilian politics has been so immobile mm-hmm. during the democratic period um, is that you just need to pay a lot of people off to get anything done so if you want to get you know, 10% of your agenda passed, you're going to need to spend, you know, basically uh, a lot of 90% of the rest of it buying people off. And that's the most of what you can achieve because that 90% is basically a fixed amount. So the most you're going to achieve is 10% of your program. Um, and that's something which I think uh, has been insufficiently discussed in Brazil because it's been clouded by a moralistic understanding of, of corruption. I mean, I agree totally with that. And it's by design. Yeah, it's effectively the military which oversaw the transition and the political allies ensured a breakdown of Brazil's political representation in Congress that would give inordinate powers to clientelistic elements as a way of preventing, even if the left took power, they wouldn't be able to do much without getting their hands dirty because you wouldn't be able to get a majority. Yeah. Now, as I was pointed out in South Africa, my home country, we have a different corruption regime in which there are no consequences for not delivering anything. So you have like a purely anti-developmental, anti-economic growth, parasitic form, which is basically taking money and uh, infrastructure out of the country into private pockets. But in some respects, part of the issue with corruption is it represents a form of the privatization of public life. Yeah. And that's why it's a degrading effect. And even when it works, it's got a degrading effect. And even when it's legal, one should add as well, because, you know, if you think of, uh, if you want to take the US-American case, you've got the, you know, lobbying is probably the most evident example with the huge amounts of uh, money and influence that gets traded there, all done legally, officially, etc. Um, you know, it's not like congressmen necessarily are receiving, um, you know, packets under the, uh, you know, under the door. Maybe they are as well, but that isn't even the essence of it. It all functions without uh, illegality. Which is part of what Bolsonaro has done, particularly in the secret budget and getting rid of the accountability mechanisms is ensure you can do all of this without, you know, violating the law. So the issue with the secret budget, it's the whole scale privatization of public life in terms of representation, in which without any sort of oversight or accountability, you can distribute this pork barrel spending without even having oversight on it in public. Yeah. And it goes unevenly divided between who's allied and who isn't. Who isn't. I mean, just give you an example of what it looks like in practice. You have uh, villages in Marinho, one of Brazil's poorest states which are reporting uh, more tooth extractions and the number of teeth of people available in this town, including newborns. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, the this idea of, um, of corruption as something which is, I mean, which is effectively a, a feature and not a bug of all modern politics, of all bourgeois capitalist politics, is something that I think we have to 
um, develop a critique of which doesn't just fall into a culture of complaint. Oh, they're all corrupt, which leads you to set yourself up as uh, the man on the white horse is going to come in and clean this up, or at least be the one who isn't going to be tainted, which I think is a, the, a, a bit of, um, you know, a, a trap that kind of left-wing forces often fall into. I mean, that's part of the issue with the Republican, the classical Republican critique of corruption as a generation of civic virtue in public life has nothing yeah. to do with it. Corruption in that, in that understanding is something which is a deviation from one's task, i.e. serving the public interest. So it wouldn't even necessarily need to um, have elements of, of graft to it. Yeah. It could still be corrupt if you're doing not not to sound there's no way of phrasing this without sounding moralistic so to say doing what you're not supposed to be doing but effectively being so if you're entering uh with promising a certain program and deliver something else that would also be a form of corruption according to at least that republican understanding yeah, but it's also understand as systemic decay that's always going to have that sort of uh you know degenerative tendency in terms of wielding power unless you have something to shake it up now when we come to modern critiques of corruption part of it is that it's divorced from politics as I mentioned before, and I just want to do my quick rant. to underline that, yeah. The scandals are created, not made. A scandal results in when a information about a particular act of corruption or deviance from behavior comes to light. And not only is it, uh, you know, a form of corruption, it's a form of corruption which is deemed intolerable. So it has to be distributed in terms of information to enough people. It has to be promoted as beyond the pale. It has to be spread. It's a mediatized thing, which is a feature of modern politics. We could think of even like scandals that are created such as, you know, the Bill Clinton blowjob scandal, which results in impeachment, right? Mm -hmm. These are a process. It has to be taken up and wielded and distributed. So what that means is rather than looking at what deviates from, you know, the accepted level of corruption in society, we should think about what broad structural things change the power dynamics. We understand corruption is associated with the privatization of public life. I mean, apart from things like, you know, campaign finance reform or transparency or the sort of usual things, we can things about like simply removing the economic power of elites, you know, structural economic redistribution is one way of changing this, you know, basic functions of who wields the power in society and who's going to use that to protect their own interests. We can understand things as associated with, you know, breaking up embedded power within the media or something which, you know, represents a form of protecting this degenerated, you know, public life, which is private institutions of media, which play a role in shaping the public sphere. So when we think about corruption, we can't just think of, we have to think, one, you have an agenda that you need to pass and you have to wield, get your hands dirty to wield power. And two, what things in terms of breaking down the core structural things that promote corruption in terms of the distribution of power and resources in society, you can do at the same time, making it easier, not necessarily for you to govern, but whoever comes next to govern. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Um, and I think there's also another connection, which we should highlight, about post-growth capitalism, effectively. Because, um, I mean, to try to put this in the terms that listeners of this podcast will be familiar with, I think, you know, the end of history, by being a post-ideological age, sees a lot of corruption scandals. I mean, and what Ben says there is totally correct in terms of these scandals are obviously made. But they're done often in very sort of... Um, 
apolitical terms. It's for one section of the elite to get a, a you know a foot over the other one, get their leg over the other one, kick them out of office, and 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 take over. But effectively, nothing really changes. At the end of the end of history, when it, where in politics is incredibly turbulent, when state legitimacy is way down, um, elites don't have really the trust of anyone. Um, it's the anti-corruption seems to be far more destructive, I guess, um, a force, um, or at least it, or something is an accelerant of, of, uh, of, um, you know, an accelerant of, of turbulence. But what I was going to do is in connecting that to the question of growth is that if you have scarcity and there's just fewer funds coming in, it becomes ever more, um, a fight over, a fight over fixed pot. Um, and that makes the corruption perhaps less easy to use as a form of buying consensus, right? Because you can't just distribute these funds around because there's fewer funds going to, you know, to be had. Um, the tax take is less, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it also means that the weapon of anti-corruption might be wielded ever more frequently because if someone is getting a larger share of this fixed pot than you are, then why is that? Well, it's corruption. Well, I mean, there's a lot of points. It actually reminds me of something you were saying over drinks the other day. Half-chokingly, uh, development is holy war. <laughs> yeah. well, what I mean by that is, so if you look, as I was saying earlier, is that when uh, the sort of traditional right-wing anti-corruption uh, attacked the core institutions of the developmental state and the redistributive functions and limited its effect in changing society, um, now we have a situation that remaining lingering uh, victories or institutions of welfare state developmentalism or whatever you want to call it are now on the target of anti-corruption in this environment where development seems almost a utopian proposal in this sort of fight over scarcity. So what anti-corruption becomes is a way of uh, resolving elite battles, intra-elite battles from, you know, renewing your leadership of the liberation movement in somewhere like Angola after a major corruption scandal, because you haven't got anything else to offer the people in terms of a vision for the future, to a way of, uh, you know, again, privatizing political life by handing out more and more power to unelected judges who are also acting in their own interests rather than mass politics. So what scarcity and de-development, which you're experiencing in places like South Africa, has done, it's also undermined the core institution of mass politics, which is, you know, organized working class, trade unions, economic growth, things that include people with a level of, you know, uh, disruptive power. And instead, you have them now sidelined from the process, just complaining. And I think this is general feature of where we're going. It's not, and I think part of why development of Hollywood is, is that if you propose things can get but, better. Uh, just, just to clarify, development as Hollywood. I mean, this was something that was said sort of as a joke, but um, I, you know, I kind of made the argument that we should carry out a holy war in favor of development as a way to break through our impasse. Anyway, just to clarify for yeah, listeners. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, it's basically, when you think about it, it's a sort of proposal that things can get better. It's a proposal to provide meaning and enrich public life, to have people feel that I'm not just fighting for my neighbor over scraps. Yeah. It's like I can get a train. Yeah. So, so what this means is that uh, part of discussing is like when you have to have a program for a future that can change for the better, um, you know, you have to go provide it with a sort of, uh, I wouldn't say, you know, spiritual, but sort of virtue that has been lost in when we've lost our issues of representation, our ability to relate to each other in this atomized society. 
And this is part of where we are, is that, you know, to even get to that point where you can speak about there being a possibility of a future that looks something different than a worse version of the present or, you know, completely apocalyptic, you have, it's, uh, you know, a real struggle against people's expectations. Yeah, I think that's very important. And so just to close this out, I think it would be good to discuss what um, a more emancipatory politics are that might take on this question of corruption without playing anti-corruption politics. And okay, so what I what I mean by that is that we already know, and there's plenty of examples we've been discussing in the case of Brazil, you can think of Italy, which we've discussed a number of times in the past, um, or any number of cases around the world, that anti-corruption um, in the way that it's fought today, especially with its moralistic overtones, ends up favoring the right, various different forms of the right, and especially the new right, which is the anti-system right. It's the ones who are outsiders, um, in some sense, at, at, at the very least cultural outsiders, if not, um, you know, economic outsiders. Uh, and that tends not only to not resolve the corruption, it's in some ways perpetuated and accelerate all the worst features of contemporary politics in the name of, um, you know, bringing the people back in, getting the elites out, bringing the people back in, the right ends up just perpetuating that same, often the very same forms of neoliberal rule um, that have brought us to this impasse. I mean, it's a good point because part of what you understand is the right is fundamentally anti-social in the idea there is a possible collective subject. Yeah. So it's everything is individual interest, which, you know, obviously has its results in power. So part of what a emancipatory anti-corruption has to do is it has to reclaim the collective subject or, you know, some sort of idea that we not just atomized. And that means, you know, restoring some sort of level of politics that enriches public life, provides representation, institutions, you know, which is all, you know, sort of abstract. But more concretely, as is suggesting, it not only has to propose a developmental growth model that provides a level of inclusion, but it has to do something which is effectively wage class war, which is, you know, taking power and resources from the actual elites, those who actually hold the ruling class, power and resources in society, and taking it and giving it to other people. And But I think an important part of that also is to continue to be anti-system, in a sense, mm-hmm. which is not to say to be anti-political, but I think there's a, a, a tendency or rollback now on, on parts of the left to seeing this kind of rise of a new right and go, okay, well, we need to defend institutions, right? And I think a lot of, uh, you know, I think it's incredibly important to defend democracy, but to defend the particular institutions that exist is, um, I think is, a, is would be, uh, what well, would, would, would be effective suicide, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think that, you know, to say, oh, well, you know, if the right is saying, oh, they're all corrupt, get rid of them all, to say, no, hang on, we need to keep Congress as it is and we need to, you know, work with these people because that's the only way we can get laws passed, that sets up the the left as, a, as effectively an establishment institutionalist force, which is something that is really already happening. And so I guess the, the trick is to thread this line between um, not playing into the moralistic agenda which leads to privatization of politics while also retaining um very much sort of anti-systemic politics yeah i mean it's part of what i mean by having a future vision but nowhere is more this apparent than brazil and take the supreme court for instance the pluralization of the supreme court and the blatant interventionism of judges was key to the disastrous anti-corruption experiment where they blatantly intervened the political process in alliance with elements of lava jato they're, calling, they're basically calling the shots. I mean, just to give one example, it was the Supreme Court who authorized putting Lula in jail. Yeah. And it was the Supreme Court who authorized taking him out of jail when it was then functional for them yeah. to do so. So, I mean, now it's become like the, you know, every day there's another censorship from the Supreme Court of some sort of 
propaganda campaign or marketing campaign. But what actually happened there was that when the Vazojato revelations exposed that Moro was basically conducting a coup against the Supreme Court itself, investigating them, putting spies on them, the faction which was anti-Lavajato had the power to intervene against the faction that was pro-Lavajato. So you have an intrajudicial politics. But anyway, what I mean by that is the judiciary is messed up in Brazil, man. You can't defend it. It, it brought Lavajato, it brought this disaster to see. Just because Bolsonaro is against it now when it suits him doesn't mean it's an institution worth saving. It needs to be something which isn't just a pre-capitalist, pre-development medieval sort of cost. Yeah, and it needs to be severely neutered. <clears throat> and uh, defending, for example, the Supreme Court because it opposes your hated right-wing uh, populist politician uh, is a road to nowhere and actually only strengthens uh, something which has perhaps even more institutional power than than, than this than the sort of new right does at the moment. And that's what we're seeing in, in Brazil right now. Um, kind of the left having recourse to the electoral courts constantly as a way of adjudicating, uh, you know, adjudicating over fake news um, rather than kind of fighting its own battles. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a hard proposition because, I mean, the reason why, especially in somewhere like South Africa where you have a reasonably progressive judiciary more than Southern Kiev, where you don't, is uh, and you, you a in both countries to an extent is a progressive element in the constitution. Is that when you don't have actual power on you know disruptive power, political power, power in numbers, you know institutions with power, you have to rely on the judiciary to solve your problems because you can't beat them politically. It's a, it's a symptom of weakness when you have to resort to the courts because you can't win an election, you can't put a strike in that beats them, you can't cause consequences for you know elite misdeeds. Very good. Um, well, this question of corruption, I think, as we've been arguing, will continue to recur and wherever you are, wherever you're listening to this, precisely because in a world which, which is increasingly post-growth and certainly post-development, where there's little horizons for the future, but at the same time, there's decreasing trust in institutions, state legitimacy is continually declining, uh, Corruption and specifically anti-corruption is a weapon that uh, is always ready to hand. And uh, as we've been arguing, it is a dangerous weapon to wield, perhaps sometimes a kind of suicidal one. <laughs>